No matter how large a figure may grow to be, in their own lifetime or in the generations that follow, there are still parts of their lives that slip by unnoticed and unremarked upon. History always favors the bigger picture, but sometimes the greatest stories are the smallest. For example, did you know the story of Napoleon's most humiliating defeat? Or see the signs of future follies in Richard Nixon's past? Have you heard of the greatest novel Robert Louis Stevenson never wrote? If not, strap in, because this is a different kind of little slights, where we'll talk about the moments lost in the shadows of some of history's tallest figures. I'm not here for the grand schemes this time, but the things in between. Let's talk about the devils in the details. Napoleon Bonaparte is regarded as one of the greatest military minds in history. His battle record speaks for itself, a rolling sweep of victories across the continent of Europe and beyond that helped him secure a crown and France an empire in the early 1800s. By 1806, he had ticked off enough nations that they formed an alliance against him known as the Fourth Coalition. The two sides battled fiercely for a year until Napoleon emerged victorious once more with the last combatant, Russia, falling at the Battle of Friedland in June of 1807. Napoleon signed the Treaties of Tilsit in early July to lay down his terms and make peace with the coalition. All in all, it was a huge success for the Emperor of France, and he decided to celebrate this victory with a traditional rabbit hunt for him and his friends and his generals later that month. You might think you know Napoleon's worst defeats. The Battle of Waterloo, you say, at the hands of Wellington. Or maybe you believe it to be the staggered humiliation that was Napoleon's Russian campaign, where he lost 200,000 men and the war despite winning nearly every battle. But I am here to tell you no. It was on that French field, on that warm summer morning, surrounded by allies, that Napoleon would be handed his worst defeat. Now, a typical rabbit hunt involved a bunch of noblemen shooting at game not in their natural habitat, no, of course not, don't be foolish, but instead trapped in large numbers in cages and then scared into running across an open field where they would be easy pickings. You know, for fun. Napoleon had left the task of organizing the hunt to his chief of staff, a man named Alexander Berthier. It was expected that Berthier would employ some trappers and get the rabbits, and sure enough, the man turned up with up to 3,000 rabbits ready to run for their lives away from the hunters lined up at the edge of the field. The servants began beating on the cages, riling and terrifying the rabbits. The nobles began loading their guns, and the signal was thrown. The cages opened. 3,000 rabbits poured onto the field. But instead of running from the humans and their guns, they turned and ran straight for them. At first, it was humorous. Why wouldn't it be? Silly rabbits, hunts are for fleeing. But then the men grew concerned. The rabbits weren't stopping. Indeed, in a move that Napoleon himself would envy, they had split into two sides and were approaching the men in a pincer formation, surrounding them with a squealing wall of fur. In an instant, it was over. The humans were overwhelmed. Napoleon and his men tried to beat back the rabbits with their crops, hands, and weapons, but the rabbits were relentless. Napoleon, seeing that the battle was lost, abandoned his men and fled to his waiting coach, but the enemy was ruthless. Even when he had gotten to the safety of his carriage, Napoleon was kamikazed by several balls of ears and fur and giant frantic feet. The emperor was forced to quit the field entirely, leaving his men to make their own escape from the furried frenzy, which they eventually did. No casualties were reported for either side, but it was undoubtedly Erictolagus Cuniculus, that great rabbit kingdom, that had won the day. As Napoleon sped away, no doubt he had to wonder, what the hell just happened? 
It wasn't the usual for a man of his strategic genius to be taken by a surprise attack, but he soon found out he'd had a traitor in its midst the whole time. Alexander Berthier. Berthier had not, as had been expected of him, arranged for wild rabbits to be captured and used for the hunt. Instead, he had gone into the city and purchased as many tame rabbits as he could get his hands on. This was either because Berthier was very lazy, Berthier was very busy, or, most likely, the woods had been hunted down to nothing by the rural Frenchmen starving under Napoleon's reign, and Berthier had nowhere else to get rabbits. Regardless, when tame animals see humans, they don't see fear. They see food. So 3,000 rabbits, give or take, hungry and scared, were released onto the field and ran straight for walking suppliers of leafy greens ready to eat, a force so terrifying and unstoppable that even Napoleon, who had just stood tall against the combined forces of Prussia, Russia, and Great Britain, could not stand in their way. I think the Russians took notes. Richard Nixon is a man whose memory is haunted by defeats. Becoming the 37th President of the United States in 1969, he is most well known for his involvement in the Watergate scandal of 1972, which eventually led to him resigning from his position and disappearing from the public eye. Watergate centered around five men who had broken into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in Washington, D.C. to place wiretaps on their phone, and the subsequent cover-up by the Committee for the Re-election of the President and the Nixon administration. Dogged investigators and journalists would pursue every thread of this story until Nixon had no choice, resign, or be removed. But not to discredit the hard work of those intrepid people, perhaps they didn't have to cast their net quite so large to find the hints of Nixon's involvement. Perhaps the only direction they needed to look was back. Richard Nixon was raised in a poor but hard-working household. Barred from sports for much of his childhood due to a family history of tuberculosis and pneumonia, he spent most of his time on academics. Eventually, it paid off, and he was offered a full scholarship to the then-new Duke University in 1934, where he would study law. Young Nixon was very thrilled to be there. He was also very broke. When he wasn't studying, he worked bussing tables and lived in a tool shed instead of the dorms, pinching every penny he had. He was utterly reliant on his scholarship to continue schooling. There was a bit of a problem, however. While Duke offered many scholarships to first-year students eager to attract new blood to the campus, they cut down the number and amount offered to second and third years, which made the competition between scholarship students intense. It was described as a meat grinder, and Gloomy Gus, as he was called by his peers, was beginning to hear the gears churning in his ears. He became increasingly worried about his grades for the semester. How had he done? What was his class rank? Would he still be there next year? Eventually, the anxiety grew too much. Something had to be done. Nixon enlisted the help of two of his classmates and formulated a plan. They were going to break in to the dean's office. They crept into the academic hall at night, and the two other boys hoisted Nixon up through the window over the door. Nixon led his friends in, and silently they went through the office, inspecting every scrap of paper they could find. Then Nixon found it. His file. He took a breath and opened it. Richard Nixon was fourth in the class. What a relief. His scholarship was secure. He had just let his fears get the best of him. I imagine he felt a little bit silly then, worrying over nothing. The boys put everything back where they found it and made their escape, laughing at what a great night it had been. They never got in serious trouble for the event, and Nixon would graduate third in his class in 1937. 
35 years later, Nixon still hadn't learned his lesson from that night. He had never figured out how to let go of his paranoia and let the chips fall where they may. He had, at least, learned to let others do the dirty work for him, though. Robert Louis Stevenson was a prolific writer of the 1850s, pinning classics such as Treasure Island and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. While views on his work varied in his lifetime, he is now regarded very highly, and his books can be found in every school library across my country and several others. In fact, some of you are probably groaning at the very mention of the man, because you had to study Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in high school. How would you feel if I told you that was almost not the case? Well you probably still would have had to read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, just maybe not quite the version your English teacher beat to death in school. You see, the one we read today of Mr. Utterson trying to parse out the strange, horrifying story of his friend Henry Jekyll and the dastardly, demonic Mr. Hyde is the second version of the tale. Stevenson had an original draft that never saw the light of day. Why? Well, there are multiple versions of that story as well. Let us, the collective Utterson, if you will, investigate the sordid tale of the two drafts. First, the inspiration. Stevenson had long wrestled with the difference between good and evil and human intricacies and had written short stories on the themes before. He had also been haunted by the trial and subsequent execution of his friend Eugene Chantrell, who had murdered his wife and possibly several students, and might have been trying to reconcile the grisly acts with the person he thought he'd known. Knowing that, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde seems like a natural end point to Stevenson's thoughts and ideas. But at its heart, Jekyll and Hyde is a scary story. Stevenson's wife, Fanny, said the idea came to him in a nightmare that he was very angry at her waking him from, because he was just getting to the good part, damn it. Whatever provoked him, Stevenson sat down the next day with pen and paper and scrawled out Dr. Jekyll and Hyde sometime in 1884 or 85 in a span of around three days. The first version of the novel's inception is that Stevenson was very ill, bedridden, and addled with fever. This was a common state for Stevenson, who had been sickly his entire life. In this version of the story, Stevenson handed the draft off to Fanny, as he always did, so she could make notes on what worked and what didn't in the novel. But as he came around and regained his senses, he began to dislike what he wrote more and more. Fanny handed the first draft back and left the room. When she returned, Stevenson directed her gaze towards the pile of ashes that had suddenly appeared. He had burned the draft entirely, scared that he might keep some of it if he left it intact, and began rewriting the whole story. No one was allowed to speak of the original at all. He worked for another three days straight, and eventually, after many revisions, produced what we know as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. There is, however, a slightly different version of events. In this version, Stevenson was not ill, but instead indulging himself with a week-long cocaine binge. Stevenson was no stranger to drugs, having written about smoking hashish with friends and likely prescribed opiates for his various illnesses. He wrote and worked at Jekyll and Hyde the whole time, and when he finally came down, he handed the draft off to Fanny to look at. Fanny was disgusted with the work. She wrote to their close friend, W.E. Henley, he said it was his greatest work. I shall burn it after I show it to you. She kept her word and cast the pages into the flames, forcing Stevenson to start all over again, likely still not entirely sober. The joining thread in both versions is that Fanny found the original draft lacking. Her husband was writing the story as if it was just another penny dreadful, 
She thought he meant for it to be more, an allegory for those ideas he had been so preoccupied with his entire life. Not just the nightmare she had saved him from, but Eugene Chantrell, good and evil. The original draft was not worthy of his talents, she thought, and wouldn't stop the creditors from beating down their door. Whether Stevenson readily agreed with that or was forced to, we'll never know, but rewrite he did. The book was a success, the family now comfortably well off for the next few years, and both Robert Louis Stevenson and the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, after a long fall out of favor, have now experienced a positive reevaluation and is a perennial favorite of critics and horror buffs alike. But I can't help but wonder what the original, the supposedly low-brow shilling shocker lost to the flames, was like. Jekyll and Hyde, as it stands now, is all suggestion and mystery. There's very little in the way of R-rated themes actually on the page. In my mind, the scene that sticks out the most is the very first, when Utterson describes the thoughtlessly cruel way he saw Mr. Hyde trample a little girl on the streets. Would the original have escalated from there, or changed directions? Was the revelation of the personality-changing potion the same? The ending? No one will ever really know but Robert and Fanny Stevenson, and they're long gone. We're left, like Utterson, with only the suggestion of true horror. I hope you've enjoyed these little tales as much as I enjoyed telling them. History is made up of a lot of things. The shifting tides of nations, grand battles and defeats, invention, technology, progress. But all of those things are made up by people, and people are made of the small stuff, the tiny gestures, the funny events, the little slights. (laughs) 